Hi, I'm Dr. Robin Koslowitz, clinical psychologist, parenting educator, and post-traumatic parent. Welcome to the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast, where we learn to provide our children with a healthy childhood, even if ours was anything but. Or maybe we had a wonderful childhood, but recent events in our lives have left us reeling. Let's face it, after 2020, we're all post-traumatic parents now. Welcome. After I record a post-traumatic parenting episode, I like to reflect on the conversation I had, sometimes in the give and take between myself and my guest. I am busy interacting with the guest and I'm busy getting as much information as I can, learning new things, getting excited during the episode. And then afterwards, when I listen to it again, new information and new truths emerge and I have a chance to reflect on the episode. That's what the episode with Dr. Sherry Campbell was like for the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast. Dr. Sherry Campbell is somebody who really describes and really expresses what it's like to grow up in toxic environment, what it's like to have parents who are emotionally abusive, what it feels like to be the black sheep, what it feels like to be the sibling of a golden child the lived experience of that, the internalized shame and pain that this feels like. Dr. Sherry is speaking from a place of having lived this. So this is very much her lived experience. And for those post-traumatic parents who want to understand this type of family dynamic and how to work on it, I suggest you read her book, check her out on Instagram. She recently was invited to give a TED Talk. So listen to that TED Talk. What I'm thinking about with Sherry is I think for many post-traumatic parents, listening to her episode is going to be a little scary because she talks about the lifelong implications of growing up with constant emotional abuse. And I know from my own life, I've had an encounter with a narcissistic person. I've had more than one. I had someone in my extended life who was narcissistic. And as a child, I remember that crazy making sensation of feeling like, is it me? Am I crazy? Am I crazy? Am I wrong? Did I just do that? Was I really being selfish? Was I really being malicious? Did I really forget on purpose? And that constant sensation of, but wait, maybe I am as bad as this person makes me sound. Or when that person would be being nice, but the niceness left me with a very bitter, yucky feeling. How do I make sense of that? When I was a child, I didn't have the ability to even understand what was going on. I didn't understand scapegoating. I didn't understand the way a narcissistic person can make, especially a teenage girl's body, betray her so that, for example, if you're explaining yourself using logic and then that person just manages to get in there just as your emotions are opening up and then you start crying, suddenly you're hysterical because why are you crying? If you finally prove like, no, I did not make that mistake. I did exactly what you told me to do. This was your error. Why are you making such a big deal out of everything? So either you accept a false narrative of events like, yeah, I am lazy, crazy, stupid, selfish. I've done all these things wrong. And then you just are apologizing for something that you know you didn't do. Or if you really work hard on establishing truth, wait a minute, let's go back. Last Tuesday. 
the exact instructions you gave me. Why are you making such a big deal out of everything? Everything's always about you. You're just such an attention grabber. So no matter what you do, the interaction is heads you win, tails I lose. I cannot imagine what it is like growing up where that's your parent, where that's your attachment figure, where no matter what, as long as you've accepted heads you win, tails I lose, then you get to go through life feeling like a slightly inadequate person to bask in the wonderfulness that is this attachment figure. That's really painful. I think of, I have a patient who the theme song to her breakup of a very intense relationship was Selena Gomez's song, I Have to Lose You to Love Me. And some of the lines of that song, if you think about them, you sang off key in my chorus because it wasn't yours. You set fires to my forest and you let it burn. I saw the signs and I ignored it. Rose-colored glasses all distorted. That sensation of I needed to lose you to love me, I needed to hate you to find me, I think that is true in certain toxic relationships. But for those of us who are post-traumatic parents, if we want to take one intention out of this episode, it is, I want to parent in such a way that my kid never needs to hate me to love themselves. My kid never needs to leave me to love themselves, to hate me to find themselves. My kid will need to leave me, but will need to leave me from a place of, I am the launching pad. I am the secure base that he can return to. I am the nest that I fly away from and then come back to. But not, I need to get out of this nest because it's on fire. And if I don't fly out of here, I'm going to be consumed by this fire and there's nothing left but ashes. Growing up with that, we can really hear Dr. Sherry Campbell's extreme pain and the extreme courage and strength and resilience it took to redefine that, to say, no, I will not have people in my life who are going to treat me like this. The whole concept of estrangement and gray rock and boundaries gets very intense and emotional for a lot of people, and it gets very scary. But I think at its core, what boundaries really are is the safest distance at which I can love you and me simultaneously. It's our job as parents to make sure that that distance is not never talking again. It's our job as parents to make sure that our child doesn't have to find themselves only through hating us, only through leaving us. I cannot imagine growing up where the secure base, as Tina Payne Bryson so beautifully says, if you want to be the safe harbor for your children, you can't also be the storm. That kind of pain is going to leave a lot of scars. I think Sherry's eventual solution, going gray rock, saying, no, I will not be treated that way. That's not the solution for everyone in every case. But no one should have to put up with the kind of gaslighting narcissistic abuse that she describes. That is simply not okay, especially to a developing psyche. I know for me, having a narcissistic person in my larger circle and learning to set more and more and more boundaries and hearing things like, well, you're holding a grudge. No, holding a boundary. I'm not going to be talked to this way. I'm not going to be gaslit. I'm not going to hear about how I've always been this or that. 
because it's simply not true. And I also am not going to waste the psychological energy it would take trying to get you to see that. Narcissistic people have a way of becoming the arbiters of reality. And if we have an inner child that's been wounded by them, we don't feel like we've ever proved a point until the arbiter of reality agrees. But the arbiter of reality is never going to agree if agreeing means that they're flawed and they're narcissistic. So agreeing that they made a mistake, they did something wrong, they're flawed, they did something that they should not have done, they need to make amends, that's not in their wheelhouse. So that's never going to happen. So I want every post-traumatic parent to listen to this episode with Dr. Sherry Campbell, understanding that if this is triggering you and scaring you that one day your kids will go gray rock with you, not if you parent them in such a way that they don't have to leave you to love me. So without further ado, I want to introduce this episode with Dr. Sherry Campbell. You can find all the ways you can access her work in the show notes. Her TED Talk is recently out, and I am very excited for you to listen to this episode. I'd really like to know your thoughts on this episode, so please DM me on Instagram, check out the YouTube channel, Post Traumatic Parenting, interact in Facebook. You have a lot of ways where we can have a conversation about the very important things that are brought up. Trigger warning, there is some swearing and some graphic descriptions in this episode. So if that's not something you want in your ears today, be advised. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Post Traumatic Parenting Podcast. I am so excited to have the guest I have today. Many of you who are post-traumatic parenting community members, diehard community members know how often I repost things by Dr. Sherry Campbell, interact on her content. Her major area of expertise is dealing with narcissistic and toxic people in our lives. And for many post-traumatic parents, this is our biggest challenge, not all of us, but many of us. And for many of us, sometimes, even when you're a post-traumatic parent and your trauma had nothing to do with narcissism or toxic people, simply by the fact that you were once traumatized in your life, you sort of have this invisibly tattooed, I don't know, label on your forehead where you may come across that toxic person, maybe as a boss, maybe as a coworker in some other place in your life. And there's something about having once been traumatized that makes us more susceptible to the toxic people in our lives. So I really want to hear about that from Dr. Sherry Campbell. Thanks so much for joining us. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. And it's always fun seeing you on my social media. And I appreciate you sharing all my stuff and, you know, serving your community. So can you tell us a little bit about your definition of toxic people, how you got into this? So I was raised by two very severely uh, character disordered parents. And uh, subsequently, a golden child, very toxic sibling. So I was the scapegoat from very early on in my life and was really hard to find my way through because the family billboard looked fairly normal outside of how many marriages each parent had. But because my brother was thriving, it was easy to say they just had one bad egg. So I certainly believed all the bad things that were said to me by my parents. And I have a new book dropping March first on abusive, emotionally abusive parents specifically, and how they affect their children and what it takes to be a cycle breaker and to get out of that kind of trauma. But per what you just said, we do tend to repeat the kind of love we were taught in other relationships. 
Yes. And I feel like for so many post-traumatic parents, this is what happens. When you're growing up, you don't know that there's something strange about your family dynamic. You don't you don't know you're the black sheep. You don't know that there's something called a golden child. You you just know that you're carrying the bad for the family and you know that it just feels real to you. It just feels like, okay, I am the bad, lazy, crazy, stupid one, and that's who I am. It's not like you know that one day I'm going to grow up and I'm going to be a cycle breaker. You just think this is true. Right. Yes, you don't know. And when I was growing up, there wasn't, you know, we're a very labeled society now, which I sort of don't love. But what I do love about it is that I think the labels are a bit overused anymore. But there was not, we didn't call narcissists, narcissists so generously back in the day. So I felt like there was a cancer that I had that had no label. And so I didn't know how to heal it. As as great as the therapy was that I got when I started at 16, she didn't use any of these words. So I didn't really, I couldn't understand it other than there was something wrong with my parents. And then I was a symptom of those things being wrong, my behavior, but in the gift of where a label helps is it helps you diagnose what kind of thing is going on. And then you can sort of differentiate, well, maybe I'm not the thing. Maybe the thing is the cancer and I'm ingesting that cancer. Today, it's just generously given. And now I think it's applied some places where it shouldn't be. But I do think narcissism or any of the character disorders, which we need to not forget how powerful the other character disorders are, in a toxic system. We can't just focus only on narcissism. There's five. So if you're diagnosably one, you have elements of all five. So understanding the cluster B personality disorders for your audience, educate yourself, knowledge is power. Also, if you've been diagnosed as having some of these traits of these character disorders, don't worry. They're all on a continuum. It just, what matters is are you acting it out for evil or are you acting it out yeah. and trying to actively heal it? So I think that when I didn't have any framework to put it in, it certainly made my healing a lot harder. It made it harder for me to see my parents as a thing that was bad or that they should have changed something or there was something wrong with them, not me. So today yeah. the healing curve is a bit easier because we can say this is what you have and this is the treatment. Yeah, I think it's very true. If you think about the the hero's journey, when we name the monster, we gain power over the monster. It's like in every myth, right? You think about like Rumpelstiltskin, right? You have to find the name of the monster. And yeah, you're right. We live in a society that overlabels, but like Dan Siegel says about emotions, name it to tame it. If you don't know what you're dealing with, I know for myself, I had some family of origin trauma because I lost a parent at a very young age and there were, you know, other people, you know, relatives who stepped in and one of them was narcissistic. And I just felt like this lazy, bad person. It took me many, many years. In fact, the when I really figured it out was when I was in psychotherapy and my therapist had given me something for homework and I didn't right. get to it. And I right. said to her, you know, I was too lazy to get to that this week. And she stopped me. She was an excellent analyst. And she stopped me and she said, Robin, stop. We're going to stop this whole session. Right, 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 right. You have a PhD. You, yes. You're writing a book. You teach parenting classes. You have two businesses. You are a mom of a lot of kids. You are patently not lazy. Whose voice is that? And she wouldn't let me go on. I kind of was fluffing it by. She's like, whose voice? When you hear Robin, you are lazy. Who told you that? 
And that's when I unpacked that. And that's when I said, oh, then, you know, when you're growing up, you're figuring out who you are and your family members are reflecting that back to you. But it's like every thread is a little bit warped because it happened for so long. Right. And I think that once, you know, the I love this saying that when a child is criticized by their parent, they don't stop loving their parent. They stop loving themselves. Their mean voice becomes your inner critic. In one of my books, I I said, I quoted Harry Potter, you know, about it was he who must not be named. Right. Like, don't be afraid to call something by its name because then you have power over it. What I did, one of the boundaries that I set, my family cut me off because I set boundaries. And then now I'm accused of cutting them off because I didn't mend the fence, which is a fun manipulation. But I started calling them by their given names rather than their family title names. They're just people now. Okay. They're not powers in my life. Mom has a tremendous power. Dad has a tremendous power. Sibling has a tremendous power. And I just started calling them by their given names as a way to just continue to help me create some emotional distance from them, the pain they caused, and all the no-win manipulation games that I was constantly tied into. So we do have to really watch that inner critic. We have to very much manage that inner critic and think, whose voice is this? Because if I wouldn't treat my child with these words, then I'm not going to treat myself with these words. You know, people often say to a survivor, oh, just love yourself. Well, that's pretty flippant when you've never been loved. So we learn how lovable we are by how our parents love us. So if love, their version of love was totally twisted, then the only type of parenting they could give would be totally twisted. Then the only type of love we will recognize will be totally twisted to self and others. So I always say, love yourself like you were your own child or your own pet or You know, we're so capable of giving love as survivors, probably more than others, because we tried so hard to give love to the loveless. So I think we're fairly adept as survivors at loving others as a superpower we have. I think what you're saying is so true. And it's because love can be so precious for us. But I always say just is a four letter word. Like whenever somebody says, you know, because I was a child psychotherapist first, and when a parent would just come into my practice and say, and even from a place of kindness, can't she just stop thinking about it? Let's say with OCD, can't she just get over it? And I'd always say, nope, just is a four-letter word. She can't just anything. That's like me telling you, you know, you ever see a basketball game and you know how they can do a, they can do like a jump shot. So just do one. Like, you know, you know what it looks like, just do it. Right. It's kind of like should. Yeah. The loaded word of you're not good enough. Well, you should have done this or you should try harder. Or, you know, recently I was selected to do a TEDx talk. And I'll be I doing saw that. that. Congratulations. Thank Amazing. you. What a, what a dream come true, right? Going from the loser kid to the biggest stage in the world. Yes. So, you know, my whole intention, as much as it's a dream to come true for me, is just to serve this population of cycle breakers. I had no idea how not alone I was. I'm probably the only expert brave enough to write about my own story and not just come at it clinically, but I learned have learned way more from my experience than I've ever learned from my PhD books. So yeah. As proud as I am that I have a PhD, that is not what taught me this. It just isn't. Experience is something you have to have in this area to get it. Yeah, because you're naming the water, like, you know, in that in that famous cartoon of, you know, the guy looking at the fish and he says, how's the water? And the fish are like, what's the water? 
people don't even know what the warder is. Even a word like mother or attachment figure is a very loaded term for someone who didn't have the kind of mother the professor was talking about or the kind of attachment figure the professor was talking about. I know for me, I always like that line that all research is me-search. And I think for me, what was really helpful, I think we've had similar journeys where my PhD program taught me certain theories and taught me certain larger ways of thinking and how to like relate to research. And then my own psychotherapy, coupled with my life experience, coupled with journaling, oh, yeah. coupled with questions from social media followers, from people in my parenting classes, like it came from a lot of places, is sort of what got me over that edge. The PhD program just sort of set the stage. Yeah, I mean, I love the education of a PhD and I love the broadness of it. I got to study incredible things with incredible people, but it's the outer edge of a, of a big jigsaw puzzle. You know, life experience is what is at the core of that puzzle. And I mean, I've researched, you know, every which way I can. I've been an avid journal writer since I was like 12 and I never actually wanted to write books and I'm on my sixth. So my journals turned into that. I think telling your your story is incredibly powerful and to do it in writing, uh, whether you publish or not, simply because it just draws the two hemispheres of the brain together. And it really helps you to just organize your inventory, which then helps you manage and regulate your emotion, your core wounds, you know, where all they are, all those things are. And I just think, you know, learning for me to shut my mouth and move my feet was a better way of setting boundaries than going into the gauntlet of gaslighting and manipulating and guilting and playing the victim and smearing. I tried that. I tried every PowerPoint, every tone of voice, every new fact, every litigation I could try to just try to come to common ground. And it was yeah. never going to work. And then I had to learn to stay where my feet were. And it's really hard. And I just did a show, a recorded a show today on my own podcast, Sherapy Sessions, Cutting Toxic Family Ties on caring about what people think. Because there's so much cognitive dissonance around the holiness of parents, we will deny all evidence that counters what we hold to be true. Right. It's fear bearing, right? That whole culture. idea of, you know, the whole idea of like wanting to be, it's be what I don't remember the exact quote, but like, it's better to be a devil in a world of angels than to be an angel in a world of devils. It feels safer for a baby. Well, we will blatantly ignore the suffering of children to avoid bringing shame upon the parents who raise them. Yeah, you know, But the physical act of bringing a child into the world is simply just not powerful enough to eliminate ingrained character deficits and abusive traits. I mean, every human being, as fertility problems aside, the organs, you know, can give babies. Doesn't matter race, age, income, doesn't matter. Bringing a baby into the world or having sex and having that happen just isn't powerful enough to eliminate ingrained character deficits and abusive traits. So we do hold strangers to higher standards of treatment of children than we do parents, right? And there are good parents all around us, okay? There really are. And I think that survivors, especially if you're a cycle breaker, you're some of the best parents out there. And so it's not about bashing parents. It's not about breaking up families. It's about establishing a language in our cultural narrative that allows us to tell parents when they need to do better. Yeah, and I think that there is a lot of threat around criticizing parents, because for some of us, that comes from a place of having been criticized. So now parenting is so valuable and secret and precious that any criticism feels scary. But there's also a societal 
disconnect, I think, between this idea, you know, that idea that I, I remember once giving a workshop and saying, you know, most love, mothers love their children. And somebody corrected me, like one of the participants was like, all mothers love their children. It was a training for principals. And I said, most mothers love their children. And she corrected me again, because she couldn't hear that. I said, you are right that the vast majority of mothers want to help their children and are good to their children. And you are right that in my, the parents I meet every day, most of them, really are wonderful and are committed and are trying. doesn't mean they're perfect, but they're trying. I've even seen people with mild forms of personality disorders. This parenting is literally the thing that gets them to do some self-examination and some soul searching and really get better. I've really seen that. I believe that there's a sacred power to a parent's love. And there are parents. And I would say that toxic parents believe in their twisted minds that they love their children. But again, whatever form of love it is that they're giving is not love. It's coercion. Coercive abuse is now punishable by the law in five European countries. We are making progress outside of the United States. And I think that culturally and religiously, we get held to these all parents are good and all parents love their children. And we live in a backwards society. Parents have rights and children have obligations. How is that possible? The child is decades younger than you. How can they have obligations to you? Children have rights. Parents have obligations. Parents chose to bring children here. (laughs) I think that the parents have the biggest, most, again, I keep going to that sacredness of a parent's love because I feel like it can feel so big and so huge. But I think the parent's biggest obligation is to do that soul searching and to heal yourself first. And if you did do something that isn't in accordance with your values, to say, I'm sorry, to repair it, to fix it. I posted a reel on Instagram about that new study that came out about how we don't have a good standard for verbal abuse and we don't have, and how there's a new study that child protective services will go into a home. They're going to look for bruises. They're going to look for food in the refrigerator. They're going to look for certain hallmarks of abuse, but there's no scale for excessive criticism, shaming, blaming, even though we know that that kids can actually recover better from having been beaten than from having been publicly shamed and denigrated and shunned. I had both. It was a lot easier for me because after I'd get hit by my father, which wasn't often, but it was enough. Once is enough, but he was sorrier after in the cycle of abuse. We can't forget neglect. We can't forget neglect. You can have money and still neglect your children emotionally. Right. Yeah, covert emotional abuse isn't identifiable by physical markers, that's for sure. But right. it's potent enough to break the hearts and spirits of children and leave them with lifelong internal right. bloody wounding that no one can see. So, you know, we don't we're, we're I think we're establishing those standards now uh in our society, which is wonderful because we need to save the children and families of the future so that we can have a lower divorce rate. So that we don't have one toxic family member at the helm and everybody afraid around and not wanting to poke the bear. It's a challenge for for people to get better. You know, uh, the real patient at the end of the day doesn't ever get treated because these people don't stay in therapy. They don't have empathy. And so they don't really care about how they make other people feel. They care greatly about how you make them feel, but they really don't care how they make you feel. So if someone doesn't have any empathy then they're not going to be able to show you any loyalty. Why would you be loyal to someone that you really don't care how they feel? And if there's no loyalty, then there's really no connection. So if you bring one of these people into a therapy office, 
it's going to be all great as long as the problems are focused on the other person. But the moment that that shifts, and I've seen this so many times in my office, they bounce, they're done. They trash the therapist, wasn't a good therapist. The real patient doesn't get treated. So as cycle breakers, we have to just, just continue to be a part of this movement of helping our own children, loving them the right way, respecting them, regulate your own emotions so that you can help your child learn to regulate theirs. Children don't cause bad parents. Parents can either regulate their emotions wisely and maturely, or they can't. And no parent is perfect. We're all going to have our moments. If you think about that, I'm just, I don't mean to cut you off, but I've seen, this is something that I've seen in my psychotherapy, where if you think about that, when a parent says, I didn't mean to yell, but he's so annoying, or, you know, I had to do it because she's so this or she's so that. So you're saying that your child has more power than you, because that's what you're saying. You're saying that your child, and that would be very scary for a small child. I didn't mean to yell at you. I yelled at you because you were being so annoying. So you're eight and you can make me do something. I yelled at you. That was wrong. We can have a separate conversation about the annoying thing you did. Sure. We're going to hold kids accountable if they do something wrong. Kids have to, of course, you know, you, I tripped over your backpack. It shouldn't have been in the front hall. I could have broken my neck. I can have that conversation with you later. But I didn't yell at you because you were lazy and you left your backpack in the front hall. So therefore, you're selfish, right? I yelled at you because I lost control of my big emotions. And, you know, the anger is the most misused emotion in parenting. What happens to children unconsciously is they watch this raging, out-of-control adult parenting, which those don't even go in the same sentence. They develop a malignant form of a lack of respect for their parent because eventually, As I was growing in my life, it wasn't that they couldn't handle me. They couldn't handle themselves. And anger is easy. That kind of rage is very easy. If if you have not soul searched, to be hateful and rageful is very easy. And it's scary when you're a child. And that works because the child gets into, you know, survival mode. Your parents should not trigger survival instincts. You should be able to rest in the space of your parents, not survive. Right. So I think that parenting is changing. I'm so hopeful for the future of our families and because I think people are really interested in growing anymore, but we can't change other people. You know, instead of changing, these people blame and then they play the victim and, and they're the victim of themselves, but they're so wily in how they manipulate that they're very masterful. And it's learning to get out of the confusion. And that's why boundaries are so important. You know, boundaries are understood, or I think very misunderstood in our culture as getting people out of our lives. I think it's the dead opposite. I think we set boundaries to give people an opportunity to stay in our lives. We set this boundary. This gives them a beautiful, wonderful growth opportunity to show us that they love and respect this relationship. They value it. So they're going to respect the boundary, whether they understand the boundary or not. What hurts my feelings might not hurt your feelings. But if I tell you this hurts my feelings and that person loves you enough and respects you enough to respect your boundary, then they stay in your life. If they don't, and what I found with with especially my mother, if I set a boundary, it gave her information on how to further hurt me. She just poked the bear. She took herself out of my life. I didn't ask her to go. Yeah, if boundaries, if boundaries are what protect relationships, which is what I believe, then anytime you ignore a boundary, you're fraying the relationship, which means you're saying the relationship is not valuable. Doesn't mean we can't negotiate our boundaries. We can have a conversation where somebody, you know, we set a boundary and someone's like, can we change that a little bit? You know, and yeah, sure, sure. you know, like 
you know, I, can I please come? I want to see your kids. I'm in my, I'm in your neighborhood on Wednesdays. Wednesdays isn't great for me, but you know what? You're respecting my boundaries in other ways. I'll negotiate that with you. We can have that conversation. Doesn't mean I set a boundary. I'm like, that's it. It's a steel door. I can change boundaries over time, but the yeah. boundary itself is not threatening. The boundary itself is literally the thing that keeps the relationship alive. Yeah. It's not threatening to someone healthy. Right. It's extremely threatening to someone who is not estrangement where I'm at, you know, I mean, my father's passed now, but I was cut off. So I just didn't have the bandwidth anymore to, they followed the wrong car to a restaurant and I got cut out of their lives. I didn't it's bananas, but I just was like, gosh, if, if this is going to happen over this time, I'm just like, I don't have it in me. I just ran out. I ran out of try. And I'm so glad that I did. Um, it's called no contact. There's not another way to put it, but no contact and cancel culture are so different. This took five decades for, for me to get to the running out of try, because I do think that we really want family. I think we need it, but there is life without it. And my life has changed over the last seven and a half years in ways that it would never have changed for the positive had I stayed tethered to the poison. So I love that I ran out of try. I love that. Yeah, I, I did, that's I mean, like so. Yeah, because I think that that's the the flip side. So many people talk about estrangement, which of course is always a last resort. We want healthy relationships. Always. We're yes. hoping for healthy relationships. It's when a boundary is ignored for five years that estrangement and no contact and things like that are tried. But so often, what happens is we hear this pathologized as you know people are disposable. They throw away relationships. No, you ran out of try. That's the opposite of disposable. Yeah. Right. Like I can't attend the arguments anymore. I can't attend these gladiator games when it's a family. It should not be war there. It's right. war there. I can't attend. My attendance isn't required anymore. I couldn't do it. I had no more try. I was just so relieved that it was over and I had to grieve. It was horrible feeling the way that I had to feel. And it was terrible, but it also saved my life. Like I dreamt of this other life for a long time. And I talk about this in the new book coming in March, but because I didn't know anything other than the life I had and familiarity so powerful, I was always in this place of like, well, I don't know if it's going to be better out there. You know, if I don't right. have any experience with that. And then if I do that, the way that my family is, I'll never be able to come back. And that shouldn't be that way either. So right. When I ran out of try and decided I'm not, my attendance isn't required for that you followed the wrong white car, petty stuff that's turning into an all out character assassination of me in front of my kid, no less. I just couldn't attend those things. The try was gone. I had to make it through all the hoovering and the post separation abuse and all that stuff. And I just held on tight. I just stayed where my feet were. I journaled every day. I got in therapy. And I just looked at the reality of my family. I lost so many relationships due to the smear campaign. But once I understood that the whole point was to scare me back in yeah. and to just keep me prisoner, I just thought I'll lose everybody if that's what it takes. And I even have to be accepting that other people are going to think I'm this monster. Then, I mean, if that's going to make this go away, then I'll just be the monster. It was just such a lesser evil to have people believe lies about me than to go live in the reality of that family for one more second. Wow. Was your child like one of the impetuses for that? Like, I don't want this child to grow up in this. 
Oh my God. Yes. And then my mom reached out to my ex-husband after she cut me off and realized I wasn't attending these fights anymore. I was going to let her win. She was going to try to form a relationship with my ex-husband who she hated and to see my daughter behind my back without my permission. No, ma'am. No. My daughter was wily enough to be like, that's not right, mom. And she was 11. I said, you're right. It's not right. So I don't know. I feel like I have like a little star child. She's really intuitive and and she's such an old soul. And, and she's always been that way. As much as I'd love to credit myself for what a great kid she is, I think she was just born with some magic dust in her. And she saw she didn't ever like the energy of my mom. What we don't so, do for ourselves, we do for our kids. What we won't have right. the courage to do, we'll do for them. But I'll tell you, having her... And then watching the interaction between my mom and her and my dad and her, it was so icky. And I was, that started to wake me up. Having her save my life because without her, it just wouldn't have been so clear. And I I was like, why am I so uncomfortable to leave her alone with them? Or why am I so uncomfortable when my mom does this or my dad does that? You know what I mean? I I just was so uncomfortable and it's because they aren't well (laughs) and she's so pure and so innocent. So I really started looking and researching and reading about self-absorbed parents and stuff like that after I'd had her. And I will say, I'm so sorry that happened to you, but I will say for so many post-traumatic parents, sometimes it's not parents. Sometimes it's other people in your family of origin. Sometimes it's community leaders or spiritual people. You know, there's that person that somehow thinking about that person talking to you that way in front of your kid and your kid hearing that, sometimes that's the first thing that gives you the courage to say, oh, yeah, I am setting this boundary no matter what the backlash is because my kid cannot grow up subjected to that or get triangulated into that. Cycle breakers. That's a cycle breaker thought process. And that is a superpower. When you break the cycle, you don't just break the cycle really in your own family alone. You are one less abused person passing that down for the future. That's how powerful that is. It is so powerful. And it's It's such a superpower. And I love being a survivor. I celebrate being a survivor because I've learned in my life that there's people that have gone through far less trauma than myself and they can hardly handle it. And it's not a judgment. It's just that I've always was taught I was weak and I was bad and my, my thinking was off and I was mentally ill and all of these things. And I've recognized that my insecurities, and I do this in the new book, but I turned them to superpowers And so my depth of being able to understand or see or feel things has just become a superpower, which it was the thing I hated about myself the most. I'm like, why can't I just let things go? Why can't I just move on? Like nothing happened after I get abused. Like I used to just punish myself about that because that's what I was told. Just let it go. God, you never get over anything. You hang on to everything, you know? So I believe that about myself. And now I recognize it just raised my EQ. Because I had to look so far, so wide, and so deep to find myself. Yeah, and I think it gave you that wisdom to, you know, that ruminating and ruminating and not letting it go was because you were a truth seeker and you weren't going to let it go. Like Carol Gilligan says in her books, there's a reason the fool in the Victorian tale was the truth teller. And a lot of times it's those cycle breakers, especially those adolescent girls in her research, where they just want to tell the truth and they just want to tell the truth. And it's stupid to tell the truth because you get punished for it. But you can't live without the truth. I couldn't keep my mouth shut. 
I wish I could, I would get so angry. And then when I'd get angry, I'd be called the abuser. Right. So then I believed I was an abuser because I was so angry, but I just lived feeling defeated every single day. And I don't think there's anything, any worse feeling than to feel totally defeated every day. There's no motivation. My grades were bad. Everything was bad because I was defeated. But I didn't know what was happening to me because it was so covert and so masterful the way, especially my mother would manipulate. She just hogtied me every time. And oh, it just made me so mad because I knew I had the truth, but there was no way to externalize it. So learning to let her win in her mind and her ego, it's like, win, win. I'll give you a standing ovation. Just win. If you'll go away, then win. And then you'd get, I'm not trying to win. I'm not, I don't want to be right. It's like so crazy. So whoever it is, if it was your medical doctor, if it was your piano teacher, whatever, whoever that person is that, that went in and harmed the inner self, that inner child, the innocence of who you are, that inner hope, it is really hard to, to grapple with it. But I encourage you to wrestle with it and give it a name and give it a place, put it in writing, make it have form because when you make peace with that space, you are just not beatable. And because you're not in competition, it doesn't matter to you anymore. I live a very private, quiet life. I stay where my feet are. I tell very, very few people what I'm even doing. I've got my close friends. I've got the man that I love. I've got a beautiful daughter. And I just don't need the attention. I love living privately, quietly, and elegantly, and deeply in my journals and in my books and in the service that I can help in the ways I can. And I'm just one piece of the pie. There's amazing experts out there, so many other amazing survivors. And I think we're a pretty powerful community, and I think we're getting stronger. I think it's true what you're saying about like, transforming it into a superpower. But also, I want to talk a little bit about that anger that you're saying. I think for a lot of kids, sadness, depression, defeatedness, like that, The sometimes the only opposite emotion to that is anger. Like anger is what gets us out of defeated. So a lot of post-traumatic parents talk about that, like, you know, anger. And then I was the angry kid. I was the yeller. I was the mean one in my family. And then when we become adults, we realize we don't know how to be angry. We don't know how to do appropriate anger. Then when we have kids, it's so scary because we don't know what to do with our anger. So we don't want to do the mom rage thing. So we try to push away our anger, push away our anger. But then, of course, it explodes as mom rage because we're used to, I feel defeated, I go to anger, right? With kids, you sometimes feel defeated. Like, I don't know how to get this done. This house is such a mess. Like, And then you go to anger because that's what you were trained to do your whole life. To be able to come, for me, I feel like in therapy, coming to terms with my anger and meeting it and being like, oh, hello, anger. You're here to teach me about problems and boundaries. Thank you. Yeah, I have so my helpful. patients do a fuck you for list. Okay. In my new book, I write a whole chapter on anger. And there's a big difference between anger and rage. I didn't see anger in my parents. I saw rage. They're different. Anger is a healthy emotion. Right. It is the only emotion that brings justice to an injustice. Right. You know, Maya Angelou talks about march your anger, speak your anger, write your anger, right? Never stop talking their anger. But if you repress your anger, it turns to rage. And rage is not normal. It's not healthy. But I think it's important to be angry for justice, to get justice. 
And then as adults, I find that we underuse anger because we turned into pleasers yes. to overcompensate for our angry feelings because anger always has the truth. Always. Yes. Yes. Anger is the most honest emotion we have. So when you get parented away from it and you're repressing your anger, it either turns to extreme sadness, right? Anxiety, or it turns into rage if you don't know how to regulate. But most of us actually are pretty overly regulated when it comes to anger because it was so punished, right? Yeah. So when you have children, it's okay to be angry at your children, but you have to think about the difference between anger and rage because it's their behavior that made you angry, not their person. Right. And behavior is modifiable. And I think you should treat your children like they're little adults and talk to them like they're smart people, speak success over them and give them options. Anytime I had to discipline my child, which was not very much, but I made her choose her own discipline. And we would reason through why she chose that, what she was going to learn from it. We had adult conversations. I want her to think about her own thinking, and I want her to be able to take a perspective of someone else, and I want her to be able to also have boundaries. So... I think that in doing that, I've watched my daughter avoid peer pressure. I've watched her be able to stand her solid ground, even when she was scared. And those things were wonderful. I didn't have anyone speak success over me or belief over me. So I think that anger is for justice and you deserve justice, but anger does not mean yelling. Anger right. means boundaries. Enough is enough. This is where we're at. And, and, and there's going to be a real change to this relationship if respect cannot be a part of it. That's and anger. Anger is just, at its core, it just gives us that energy to actually do something about a problem that has felt so demotivating. And I think about that. it. E dot motion. Put that together. Emotion. Right. It's energy in motion. Right. So if we stay in the sadness, the fear, and the anxiety, which women really tend to do, because then culture will say women are psycho if we're angry, but they're talking about rage, rage, not anger, and they're different. And I go through and I go through all the emotions, what the healthy emotion is, what the unhealthy emotion is. So learning to utilize anger is what fuels boundary setting. It fuels confidence. It fuels your own self-respect. It enlivens your dignity. It helps you to stand that solid ground with poise, not rage. And we just don't know the difference in this culture between anger and rage. We think it's all the same and it really isn't. And it's so helpful to detail those things out so that people can say, I'm angry. Instead of like, if you're enraged, you need to say, I'm enraged. I need a minute. Because I, you're not sitting I around was, me right now. <laughs> I was recently talking to a post-traumatic parent, and we are talking about something workplace-related where she was very angry at a colleague who sort of made her responsible for his mistake. And she was very afraid of her anger. And I said, your anger is telling you something. What he did was wrong. What you need to do is communicate to that, that to him clearly. And because I wonder if we're dealing with someone with some narcissistic traits. So I think you need to like copy both of your supervisor on the email so that, you know, but have a conversation with him about, we have different communication styles. This is the communication style that I need. I, if you want me to take care of a certain task, then you need to, you know, CC me on the email or, you know, write yeah. specifically to me, whatever it was. You need to tell me. He had really, between you and me on the lamppost, he had messed up. He hadn't told her to do something. And he was like, well, you should have figured it out. 
that was, which is classic narcissistic kind of like, you know, gaslighting. Okay. Whether he is or he isn't, I am not diagnosing him. What I'm telling her is use that anger now before it becomes rage and then you lash out at him and then you look like that hysterical female, right? Right now, write him that assertive letter. Here is my communication style. If there is something that you need me to do, you need to CC me on the email or you need to, you know, write me a separate email detailing what my responsibilities to this task are and then CC the boss. So then it's known. Now I told you, I'm very Mm -hmm. clearly because anger identifies a problem. So address the problem. Then it doesn't become rage. Then you don't lash out because she's so afraid of her anger that she's afraid that she will lash out. And then she'll be like, you know, like you're saying, that psycho woman in the office who's screaming over something relatively minor. Yeah, because use your anger. Yeah, she's afraid of her rage. She's She's actually afraid of her rage. Right. So we're all capable of it and we all have limits. You know, if your limits get pushed to a point where you can no longer tolerate something, you're going to rage. Not all yeah. rage is wrong. It's just depending on where it's going and how, what the outlet is. I think that to regulate your emotion, if you're at rage, it's okay to take a minute. It's okay to take 24 hours. It's not an emergency. And it allows you to kind of just calm down because anger makes things very clear. If you are not clear, then you could be enraged. Anger is clear. There's no doubt that when you're angry, you know why. Okay, so if you're enraged, there's probably a lot of confusion added to it. There's a lot of other things going on, lots of triggers, projections or whatever. It's very human, but you just don't want it to be the way you go out and handle your life because you will never be taken seriously when you rage. You just won't. Yeah, you won't. I wonder if you have advice for post-traumatic parents who have a toxic person in their life that they can't go no contact with like a boss, a supervisor, you know, a colleague, an ex-husband, somebody who they do have to interact with. What are their so, options? Gray rock. You know, I would love for you to look up gray rocking. It's about being the most boring rock in the pile. It's learning to be very much a listener and not much of a talker. If they get the conversation off onto you, you can answer a few questions very superficially, but then deflect back onto them. The great thing about, you know, somebody who's character disorders, they love to talk about themselves. And they won't even notice, honestly, if you have low contact and you're gray rocking, as long as they're sort of, you allow them to be at the center, right? Then do that. If it's family, I think that they catch on a little quicker than a boss or a colleague because they have already a history with you. So I would sort of show up either early or late to certain family festivities and then leave kind of early or late. You know, I would exit conversations because you have to go to the bathroom all of a sudden if it starts turning to gossip, you know, and just using a lot of deflection, just getting it off of you and back on to them. Because if it gets on you, the more you say, then the the more gossip that's going to go. And you just want things to be cordial and very superficial. That's kind of what gray rocking is. And it's brilliant because it it's sort of like the healthy form of gaslighting a gaslighter. Yeah. Right. It's it's kind That's of using your yeah. own techniques against them, but you're not doing it maliciously. You're doing it self-protectively. The less that you talk about yourself to these people, the better. Because yeah, the, the less more they know, yeah. then the more they can fish, then the more power they have to gossip, manipulate or whatever. So I would stay very superficial in content. And yeah. I think, too, using your body, like if your colleagues coming down the hallway and you're face on. As they get closer, I'd give them a hip and a shoulder. And as they get even closer, I'd just turn your back and I'd start walking. Don't do this. Don't give them your eyes. Right. So short visits, use your body. 
and keep it cordial and superficial. Deflect the conversation back onto them. They'll think you're the brightest person ever. <laughs> they get to talk you know, about the it's, it's also we have to accept that like they're mm-hmm. never going to see our side or our way. Oh, so if you sit there and have that fight, you're just giving them ammunition. You're feeding a fire. Why would you want to do that? Like stop attending. They're going to do it. The war. Stop attending. Your attendance is not required. Keep it simple. Keep it short. Value your privacy. You know, I I had to really. That was just such a thing. I never had privacy as a child. That wasn't allowed. It was this invasive onslaught uh, into my life from my authority figures, and so. When you really want to keep private or you feel like you don't want to expose yourself to your boss, your colleague, a gossipy friend, your parent, whoever, value your privacy. And they won't know the difference if you just deflect back onto them. And people won't accept your explanations anyway. You know, so when you have those like narcissistic family members who are like asking you, you know, for a favor and you're like explaining, well, I have a dentist appointment that day. It's not going to work. They're just going to be like, well, you should reschedule your dentist appointment. No matter what you say, you could say like my house was on fire that day. It yeah. won't work. Well, your house shouldn't have been on fire. Your house fire on Thursday. Yeah, yeah, they don't care. So if you get into the, those no win things and they're trying to get you to reorganize, I would like literally pretend you get a text on your phone and be like, wait, let me get back to you. I have to take this call. It's a patient. Then don't answer the question. Find ways to get out of Dodge. It starts getting like what you just explained. You have every right to interrupt the conversation, however you have to do it. I don't care what you have to do. I've done that before because being a therapist, I can get 24 seven calls, right? And I can be like, oh, wow, shoot. I've got to take it. I mean, you can always need the bathroom. You can always need a drink of water. You can always, you know, forget, have forgotten to take your medicine. I mean, there's a thousand things that you can interrupt the conversation for because you're never going to win with the truth. So there's no point. Never. I had this with a colleague who was telling me about her in her family. She can't leave holiday parties early because whoever leaves gets gossiped about. They're going to gossip sure. about you anyway. If they want to gossip about you, they're going to gossip about you. They're going to gossip about you at 5 o'clock or at 11 o'clock at night. Either way, they're going to gossip about you. I mean, they have WhatsApp. Yep. They can gossip about you. So yep. Yep. what's the point? You might as well leave when you want to leave because either way, they're yeah, going to say can't, what gonna We say. can't control it. I, I identify with that person because when I was young, I used to time everything. I time when I went to the bathroom at holidays, I'd look how many people are in the room and, you know, that's exhausting. And that's all I knew at that time. But now it it gets to the point is like, you know, the let them theory, just let them, they're going to anyway. So my thought is if, if they're going to be who they are anyway, regardless of how hard you try to not have them be that way, then stop focusing on them. Just do what you want to do. And none of us are in touch with that. When you're so yeah. worried about being what everybody else wants you to do, we're not even in touch with what we want to do. It's yeah. something you have to actually learn. Yeah. But I got to a point where I can't keep focusing on the world I left because yeah. I left to have a world out there and I haven't even tried it out yet because I'm so busy worried about what's going on over there that I have to protect myself from. Nothing, nothing new. Yes. Have they done horrible things post-separation abuse? Yes, but I didn't attend the argument. Yeah. I stayed quiet. I stayed private. God learning to do that was as one of the most maturing things that I'd ever done to harness my own healthy ego that just wanted the truth out there. They don't care. So I, I just had to let go of even wanting balance, let alone winning 
right? I didn't care. And somehow that made me win, at least for me, because I'm happy. Because you're conserving your psychological resources for your own values and your own life and your own daughter. And you're not wasting them fighting a war that you are never going to win because you're never going to persuade someone to believe something that's against their vested interest to believe. It's not possible. Like psychology is working against you. Family members like this, they're not interested in healthy. They cannot feel their existence in healthy with equality. They can only feel that they exist if they are in power. That's it. To be... Yeah, I, I think there is that other side. I have done a significant amount of family reconciliations where somebody went, you know, somebody went no contact for a while. And then I had a family member say, what do I need to do to reestablish a relationship with her? Yeah, you're saying, what do I need to do? You're fabulous. I already have tons of respect for you. And yep. then we've been able to create that. But that there happens. has to be that willingness. If the willingness isn't there so mm-hmm. if the understanding of boundaries isn't there, we're never going to get there. But you, ha- the willingness is yeah. either there or it isn't. And you find out very fast if the willingness very is Very fast. I've reunited certain families and I came to found that the ones that were willing, they just were mildly character disordered. They weren't right. severely character disordered. You're just not going to find someone severely character disordered that's ever going to be willing. So you have to figure out what flavor they are, what level they are, and you know go there. But you deserve to be happy. You right. absolutely deserve to be happy. It is your birthright. You can't change people who blame. Yeah. The life you have is over here and right now. It's not back there. They're right. not invited to the party anymore. Right? right. And you deserve to feel one thing I, I learned is when I was little, I just wanted relief. Happiness was way too big of an ask. So my only form of happiness I ever felt was relief. Right. Like I had a week that wasn't so bad. Right. Right. I just wanted relief. Well, I want more than relief now. And I have more than relief now. It's because I was able to get that energy out of my life that was siphoning from me all the time. Even one vein of it was enough to poison me. So I think it's important to just commit to your own happiness, whether you have no contact, whether your boundaries are light or harsh or medium, whatever that is. Just negotiate it. But if you're going to look for a compass on how things are going, don't look to be how look at how they're behaving as your win. Look to how you're feeling as your win. Right. You have to be your own compass. Yeah. These are like my psychological resources and I get to spend them as I wish, not as someone else wishes. I learned for me something huge was when I realized that I was such a people pleaser. And there was one point where somebody asked me for a favor and I did it. And I was horribly uncomfortable the whole time because I was doing this favor that I didn't want to do. And I was feeling very torn in two. And I realized, you know what? I'm going to be uncomfortable no matter what. If I say yes, I'm going to be uncomfortable because I'm doing this thing I don't want to do. Like here I am volunteering at this party when I really want to be home with my kids. And then if I say no, I'm going to be uncomfortable because she's going to judge me and she's going to call me selfish and lazy and whatever. Either way, I'm going to be uncomfortable. I might as well be uncomfortable and do what I want. That's what I I mean. And that's a great place to be when you finally get to say, oh, wow, I get to choose me. The thing is, is they're at war and they're at war all the time, whether you're there or not, because there is someone chosen to be the scapegoat after I left. Right. So. Every sick family needs a scapegoat. And if you go, you'll be replaced and they'll find the next person to pick on, right? So that's just how they function. And there's nothing you can do. You didn't cause that. 
That's not what you caused. You being in existence or in no way that you behaved caused that. So it's a beautiful thing to to start to say they're going to be this way, whether I'm there or not. Also, they were abusers long before they had children. So and they remain so as they raise you and then they continue to abuse, guilt, manipulate and control their adult children long after they leave home. There's only right. one unchanging person in this dynamic, and that would be the parents, if that's who we're talking about, or your boss, or whatever. It's not unique to you. They abuse everybody. Right. right. Everybody is an object, not a person everybody. with their own individual reality, right? Everybody's just either an audience or a, a staff member, or, you know, like everyone has roles in their life, mm-hmm. and that's what they gave them. And yeah, you're right. It doesn't have to be parents. It can be uh, it can be an ex spouse. It can be a boss. It can be a friend. There are a lot of people who can't relate to other humans as individual humans with their yes. own discrete reality. And you don't. Have I would to just be say on that play. Harder, it's the hardest for people to accept that when you give a label of parents, that yeah. cognitive dissonance really gets in the way of believing that parents objectify their children, but they do all the time. Yeah, and call that love. Yeah. There are parents who do it. There are so many people. So for so many post-traumatic parents, whichever sort of toxic relationship that you're healing from that you don't want to pass on to your kids, know that, first of all, that whole sense of like, am I crazy? Am I crazy? Did I, you know, oh, like, yeah. am I really a liar? Did I, re-? right? That whole sense, it's very universal to dealing with toxic people. And it always can be dealt with. And the way you deal with it, paradoxically, is not by arguing and trying to figure out if you're crazy, but by reclaiming your own psychological resources. And very often, yeah, for the sake of our kids, because that's what gives us the energy and courage to do it. Sherry, thank you so much for being here. How can post-traumatic parenting community find you? You can find me at drsherrycampbell.com. And Sherry can be spelled 7,000 different ways. So it's S-H-E-R-R-I-E and Campbell like the soup. And I'm at Sherry Campbell PhD on Facebook. We're 155,000 strong. And um, I'm Dr. Sherry on both TikTok, which I just started. I'm not so good at it, maybe, but I'm learning. And Dr. Sherry on Instagram. So I have a phenomenal community. If you feel alone, there's so much love in my community. The engagement is incredible. So come join us and um, be a part of a, a healing journey of cycle breakers. Yeah, you're not alone. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I cannot wait to read your next book. And I can't wait to see your TED Talk. Congratulations. That's amazing. Thanks so much for being on the show. You bet. I'm here on social media to be descriptive, not prescriptive. I'm here to educate, inform, and hopefully entertain, but never to treat. If listening to this podcast helps you realize that you need therapy, I am all for that. But podcasts aren't therapy please reach out to a mental health professional licensed in your jurisdiction. You'll be glad you did. Wish post-traumatic parenting was a talk show, not a podcast? You have a question for me or for my guests? Great news. You can ask those questions by following me on Instagram. My handle is at Dr. Kozlowitz Psychology. It's also in the show notes. I love it when people reach out, DM, or post a question. Who knows? Your question might spark an entire episode. Come join our community. We get it. We're post-traumatic parents too. Can't wait to hear from you.